Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Now, there were two reasons why Paul and Claire read for us today. One was they are superb people and I knew it would be uh, brilliant, entertaining, and they could sustain a long Bible reading together. But also, if you were here last week, um, you will have remembered that cry, Lazarus, come out, Um, because Claire shared an incredible word of encouragement last week to us, amongst eight other prophetic words that came at the end of our service. If you were here, if you weren't here, um, catch it online or something, there was just an amazing sense of God's family working together using spiritual gifts to encourage one another and strengthen one another off the back of the sermon. And we'd love to see something like that happening today. But if I can just read out the transcript of what Claire shared with us, because I don't think she knew that this was the passage. Did you know this? No, no, she's shaking her head. She didn't know that this was what we were going to be preaching on this week. Claire said this, Jesus is calling people out of tombs I was reminded of when Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out. And I wonder whether people here feel like that they are in tombs, depression or something else dark. You need to know this. Jesus has opened the way. The tomb is open. You don't need to stay there anymore. He's calling you out into light and freedom. And today, I want that to be the thrust of today's message. Come out. Because in this story alone, I don't think it was only Lazarus who came out of a grave, who came out of darkness. Martha, Mary, and many others came out of a grave of grief, of agony, of despair. And I believe that God is going to be continuing that work in us today. So I'm going to hopefully, if I remember, return to that word at the end of this. As I call people to respond in prayer over here and also respond in continuing to share words of encouragement for all of us that we might hear God, we might hear his powerful voice. But let's dive into his written word now and see more in this passage. So we're in a gospel That means it's a biography written about Jesus. Some of the people who knew him the best wrote about his life from different angles. And John is the one writing this gospel. Now, when I read gospels, I like to do something that sounds heretical and blasphemous. I like to ask the question, what would I do? Often Christians ask the question in their lives, what would Jesus do? But when I read the gospel, I I ask the question, what would I do? Not because I think I could improve on the situation, but actually in order to learn about God's holiness. Because the holiness of God just means how different God is from you or from me. So when I zoom into this and say, if I were in this scenario, what would I have done? And then I compare that with how Jesus acts, then I discover a bit more of his holiness and I see perhaps a bit more of his glory. And in this story, what I thought was, if I were Jesus and I had the power to zap a dead man and have him come to life, how would I have approached this? I would have arrived on the scene with my cape flowing 
and I would have gone straight to the tomb, zap, and then turned round and explained myself to everybody as they all stood there in awe. Wouldn't you? So why does Jesus waste time? Why didn't Jesus skip to the miracle first? Why didn't he arrive on the scene, do the miracle, then explain everything? And you could actually ask this in many other stories about Jesus. Because Jesus seems to like wasting time. He often dawdles, seems to hesitate, takes longer than he needs to. Think about Jesus asleep in the middle of a storm. All of his disciples panicking, he's happy they're sleeping. Or there was a moment when Jesus was called to go and heal a man's daughter, Jairus' daughter, because she was so sick. And in the middle of going to her, he hesitates because another woman with an issue that's been going on for years, she could have waited. He could have got back to her later. She'd been handling this for a long time. But he dawdles again, hesitates, waits, and then carries on, and then Jairus' daughter dies. Jesus is quite prone to taking longer than we think he should. Why? Why doesn't he just zoom in and zap Lazarus and then explain the whole thing? Well, I think the first thing just that's blatantly obvious is this. No one in this story was able to control Jesus. And if we remember that the big thing in John's gospel is that Jesus is claiming to be God. Something we can quickly learn from this story is no one can control God. And isn't that good news? Now I know in the moment of grief, in the moment of agony, all they wanted to do was get Jesus to do what they wanted him to do. They wanted to control him because they were sure they knew best. They, sh they were sure they knew what he needed to do. And yet, they couldn't control him. And I'd say that is good news that we cannot control God. Because just think about it. I, I looked up online. Apparently, it takes about three to five years to train to be allowed to be trusted to control an airplane, a commercial airplane in the sky. It takes about three to five years to be trusted to be able to fly other human beings across the world. Now, how many years would it need for you to train before you were allowed to control the creator of the heavens and the earth? How many years would you need? If God were to lower down the puppet strings from heaven and say, go on, pull as much as you like, how terrifying would that be? And I think actually this story has taught me a huge amount about prayer. Because if we're not careful and we get a little bit simplistic about prayer, Prayer can feel like it's pulling the puppet strings of God. Hey, if I just pray in a certain way, or I fast enough, or I do this, I will be able to control God. But actually, this story gives us an incredible insight into what prayer is actually like. Because think about it. In this story, did anyone control God? No. But did God respond to people's requests? Yes. He responded in compassion, in love, in a beautiful way. He was eager 
to respond to this request. He was moved by their words. He wanted to be there where they were, but they didn't have the puppet strings. It was completely within his control, but in his grace and mercy, he responds in prayer. He responds to their requests, to their ongoing asking and saying, please come, if only you'd been here. And actually, this is the experience of the Christian in prayer. When you're in moments that feel out of, outside of your control, this would be a good story for you to read and understand. How am I approaching God and how is he approaching me? But then asking that question again, why didn't Jesus just arrive on the scene, zap Lazarus and uh, do the explaining after? Well, I think the main point in this story is actually that Jesus wanted Martha and Mary and the crowd to see more than just a miracle. He wanted them to see more than just a miracle. And this is where I'm going to jump into a couple of verses, um, and hopefully I'll do it in some legible way. Verse 40 was the first verse that stood out to me as unusual in this. So in verse 40, Jesus says to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, I had come to this story on a surface level thinking seeing the glory of God was the same as seeing a resurrection. Because is there anything more glorious than seeing your loved one come back from the dead? But then I read it again. If you believed, you would see the glory of God. Now, do you need to believe anything in order to see a resurrection? No. A resurrection happens if it happens, and you see it if you see it. You don't, there's no belief required to see a resurrection happen. This isn't a metaphorical story. This is about a real man rising, really, from the dead. Is any belief required in that? No. So then it made me think, and I looked more carefully at verse 40, and Jesus says this, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? And then I thought, when did he tell her that? Because if you go back to the earlier conversation, we actually find this in verses 25 to 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall not die. Do you believe this? Now, above, again, verse 40. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Then, he, then the actual conversation was, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then she replies, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Now, is she just confused or is she not listening? Because he's just asked her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And it's almost as if you know that moment when someone's clearly not listening to you and then they just blurt out something else. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she goes, yes, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, I believe that. What's going on? Was she confused? Was she not listening? Well, I think to look at that, we need to zoom out and we need to think about this idea of resurrection. So I, I personally, I approached Christianity as an atheist, uh, many years ago now it feels. Um, so in my 20s, I was an atheist, very strong in my faith in atheism. Uh, but I approached Christianity or the claims of Christianity like this. I said, well, if you can prove it, if you can show me a resurrection, then I'll believe it. 
I thought, if you could prove the resurrection to me, if I saw a resurrection happen, I would believe it. And perhaps that's someone here today saying, this all sounds nice, but really, actually, you're going to have to show me a big miracle for me to really believe. I'd believe this if you could show me a resurrection. Now, I want to ask the question, is that actually true? Is that really true? Because of two factors. In this story, we find out later on in the verse after the one that Paul and Claire read, many of the crowd who saw this physical resurrection happen, many of them believed, but then it said, some of them became snitches. And they went away to the authorities and told on Jesus and said he's doing terrible things. And then the religious rulers, they don't say, a resurrection happened? Wow, we now believe we're going to follow Jesus. No, they said, right, this is serious. This guy must die. It's the moment when a nation finds out that another nation has nuclear weapons and they realize we need to step in. That was the moment for these chief priests and the Pharisees. Up until this point, Jesus has been a bit threatening. He seems, to be able to be, he seems quite good at healing people. But the moment when he raises someone from the dead, the levels turn up, don't they? The main point is, a group of people saw a physical resurrection happen. Some of them believed, some of them didn't. Second thing is this, Jesus tells an interesting parable in Luke's gospel about a man called Lazarus. Let me, brief description. There's a man called Lazarus who's had a miserable life. He's lived in utter poverty and dereliction and he has suffered most of his life. He's been forgotten about and mistreated by those who could have helped him. But we learn in this story that he had faith. Because after he died, he went to be with Abraham in the heavenly realms, in the blessing of God. So there's Lazarus up there in heaven. And then there's a rich man. We're just told he was a rich man who had a very cushy, comfortable life. He had everything he needed on earth, but he didn't have faith. And then after he died, he ended up in a realm called Hades, which is separated from God's blessing completely. So you're with me? We've got Lazarus up there in the heavenly realm. We've got the rich man down here in Hades. And this is the bit we need to focus on. The rich man still tries to boss around Lazarus from, <laughs> from a less uh, good place. And the rich man sends th says this to Abraham. Abraham, please send Lazarus back to my family. I've got five brothers. Please let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment that I'm in right now. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They've got the word of God. They've had that all the time. Let them listen to the word of God. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, please. If, because if someone from the dead goes to them, I'm sure they will repent. And then Abraham says, if they don't listen to the word of God, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It seems from what Jesus teaches and what we see from these stories that seeing 
is not the same as believing. Seeing is physical. Believing is spiritual. And I grew up saying, I'll believe it when I see it. But I didn't understand myself. I didn't understand that I'm much more than just a physical being. I'm a spiritual being as well. Now I can know from physical reality, I have seen things in the past, so if a new thing occurs, if I still have my eyesight, I will see it. But I was then thinking, well, the same applied with believing, but the reality was I had never believed any of this stuff in the past. So why would I start believing it in the future? Seeing is not the same as believing. And I think this is the moment when you realize that we are more than just animals. We're more than just matter. The Bible describes human beings, every single one of us here, we are a combination of the dust of the earth and the breath of God. In combination. We are flesh, we are physical, and we are spiritual. So would you see Would you believe in God if you saw a resurrection? Only if you believe in God before. Because this is the reality. We are all made for a relationship with God. And the only way to have a relationship with God is through belief. That is what we're getting at. So let's go back to our passage. Verse 40, again, Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you? that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God. Now, what does Jesus mean by the glory of God? If you believe, and then you see someone rise from the dead, you're going to see more than just a miracle. You're going to see the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, I think the answer comes in Martha's wrong answer. Turns out she was right. Because Jesus is asking, do you believe? And then she replies, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. And now, as you can see on those verses on the screen, her statement is very similar to the statement at the end of John's Gospel when John just essentially says, look, let me just wrap this up for you. I'm going to explain what this whole book has been about. It's been about this. Jesus did loads of other signs that I haven't told you about. And we're like, would have been great if you told us. But I haven't told you all of those. But these ones are written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, do you believe this? And she said, you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. She really got it. Because seeing the glory of God is seeing Jesus for who he truly is. And in this story, seeing him through the lens of Martha, Jesus is the Son of God with the power to bring someone back from the dead, but not just bring Lazarus back from the dead temporarily, but bring all of humanity back from the dead into new life. When you see that is the reality about Jesus, you've seen the glory of God. And you will be changed. So I just want to go through two examples of this. Seeing Jesus for who he really is, is seeing the glory of God. 
do you want to see Jesus from culture's perspective or from heaven's perspective? Do you want to see Jesus from what various different scholars or historians or skeptics think about him? Or do you want to see Jesus from the perspective of how God sees him? Personally, for me, it's the latter one. And here's two things. Jesus is much better than good people. What do I mean by that? Did you notice all of the unsung heroes in the story? These people would have got OBEs, they would have got medals of honor, they would have got all sorts of accolades in this world. First of all, there is the messenger. We don't know who it was, whether it was a man or a woman, or whether it was a group of them. But we know that the messengers who took this message from this horrific state of grief, from Mary and Martha, we know that whoever the messenger was, traveled miles and days and potentially risked their life to get to Jesus, to try and get him to come back in time to save Martha and Mary. What a hero. What commitment to the cause of life. He has gone all that way on their behalf to try and bring Jesus back just in time. We should hold him up as a hero of commitment. And then we've got Thomas. Now, many of you might know Thomas as Doubting Thomas. Have you heard of Doubting Thomas? Well, in this story, don't be mean to him, he's Thomas the Brave. Because Jesus is talking about going back in a certain direction through a certain place, and everyone is scared because they know that this is dangerous now. Jesus has upset some people. We might get in trouble if we follow him. We're not sure whether we should go or not. And Thomas says, come on, let's go and die with him. That's an inspiring leader. That is someone who can rally the troops. Don't worry, Jesus. You're a bit negative and you're putting people off. But I can rally the troops. I can really get people going for your cause. We're going to come and die with you. Thomas would have got a Medal of Honor for such inspirational speaking. And then there is the wonderful pastoral care team who've been there the entire time for days with Martha and Mary, giving up their time, giving up their resources, loving Martha and Mary, being there with them through their grief, trying to console them, trying to comfort them. They deserve a reward as well. And compare all of these heroes in this story to Jesus, who turns up late, doesn't seem to care that much, says all of the wrong things, seems very insensitive at certain moments when he's talking to Martha and Mary, the grieving sisters. And, do you notice, he didn't get his hands dirty once. He told Martha, I think, and some others to move the stone. He just stood there saying, go on, roll the stone away. And then later on, he says, go on, you unbind him. This man doesn't get his fingers dirty once. He wastes time, he gets distracted, he seems to not care. And it, from this world's perspective, look, let's just go with the inspiring characters, shouldn't we? Until there's a moment when this man who seems not to care just steps back and says three words, Lazarus, come out. 
and all of these heroes fade into the background. Because do you know any social media influencers who have that power? Three words and they've suddenly broken the curse of death. Three words and they've brought back hope to the entire family and entire community. Three simple words and the inevitable death and decay that every human being faces suddenly reverses. Do you know any other human being who could possibly match those three words? Jesus is on another level. He is so much better than any hero, any inspiring leader, any devoted carer. That is not to downplay those, but please see Jesus for who he truly is in this story. He is on another level. Do you see him in that way? It is easy to forget about all this stuff and largely have our lives centered around inspiring characters, great heroes, stories of great leaders in this world, and actually we're more shaped by them than we are him. But come on. Three words, and he does this. And then let's just compare Jesus as a final thing to Jesus is much better than Lazarus. If you, I, it's annoying how John leaves out certain details. But he does say this at the end. When he, after Jesus has said, Lazarus, come out, and this is just a random side comment. The man who had died came out, but his, while he came out, his hands and his feet were still tied up. How did he come out? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm way over-spiritualizing this. This is not good Bible reading, but it's a story. Um, my, my experience early on in church, I just didn't know what to do, to be honest. Um, I was very new to Christianity, church, all of that. And you know those moments where someone says, come forward if you want prayer about this or that, or you want to devote, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, I, and I've heard other people have had this experience. I was sat there near the back somewhere thinking, like shut my eyes thinking this is going to be funny. Let's see who turns up. Let, let's see who, who like, is so needy that they need that kind of thing. Ten seconds later, I was at the front with my eyes open going, how did I get here? I don't know if that was Lazarus's experience, but, or he maybe just did this. Um, but I think, I think we are meant to, in some way, compare this comical resurrection with a glorious resurrection that's at the end of the book. This is the rubbish trailer. Sometimes trailers of movies are actually better than the movies, aren't they? But this one is like awful. You wouldn't go and watch the film, but then actually the film is so much greater. The final resurrection in this John's Gospel is the most glorious thing. And let's just look at it in three ways. Q&A. Actually, I've never done this before, but it just seems fun. Talk to the person next to you. Why did, in both of their cases, so there's Lazarus's story and there's Jesus's story, why did the stone need to be rolled away? Very quickly, say, try and answer that with the person next to you. Why did the stone need to be rolled away? Sorry if this is awkward.
Okay. I've stolen it. This is not my insight. I've stolen this from a great preacher called Michael Eaton. In Lazarus's story, why did the stone need to be rolled away? So who could come out? Lazarus. Or else he'd be this poor guy like bumping up against. <laughs> in Jesus' story, why did the stone need to be rolled away? To let who in? The disciples. Later in John's gospel, all of the disciples are hiding in this room, terrified. They've locked the door. They don't know what's going to happen. And then Jesus appears in a locked room. Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away for him to leave that tomb. He is so alive and he is so in a new creation that he is not constrained by the limitations of this creation. And he is now living in a new reality as the trailer for all of us who believe in him of what that new reality might be like. And there's all this debate about whether we will be able to walk through doors or not. I just think we'll have better doors that can actually work. This world cannot constrain the new world. We are not under its power in the new heavens and the new earth. Second question. Quick, what happened to the grave clothes in both stories? Go. What happened to the grave clothes? Okay. Poor old Lazarus had to stand there like this, waiting for all of the grave clothes to be wound up. I wonder, uh, you wonder what Mary and Martha's relationship with him. Was it that like funny rival, uh, like sibling rivalry thing where they left his head until the last minute? <laughs> Who knows? But he was still stuck in the constraints of these grave clothes until someone else unwound him. If you read again the end of John's Gospel, the description of the grave clothes is that they were lying on the stone where Jesus had laid, completely unmoved, like a perfectly made bed that no one has ever slept in. Jesus went through those grave clothes. He was not constrained by the powers of death anymore. And I read a Charles Spurgeon sermon on this, and he uses this as an analogy. This is the Christian experience. Here and now in this life, you may experience the resurrection life of Jesus, but there are still these constraints. There are grave clothes that are wrapped around us. And as we live and walk with Christ, with the help of one another, those grave clothes, those sort of remnants of death and the dying world, they're still on us, but they can be taken off. It's a powerful picture of prayer ministry later. Because at the very end, and I'm skipping, sorry whoever's doing the slides, I'm skipping, but Jesus did say to them, unwrap him. You guys do it. Don't let him try and struggle through life trying to get himself out like Houdini. Go and help him. Guys, don't try and be like Houdini when it comes to sin, when it comes to things that constrain you, when it comes to needing to be released from certain things. Come on, rely on the church. We're here for one another. We can pray for one another. We can do that together. But the final question is this, and band, if you, if you want to take your places. 
Quick discussion. Where are they both now? Lazarus and Jesus, where are they both now and what are they doing? Quick, discuss. Where are they and what are they doing? Okay. I think this might be the shorter answer one, easier to answer. Where are they now? They're both in the same place. Lazarus is in heaven, worshipping God. Jesus is in heaven, being worshipped by Lazarus. Do you see the difference? That was good timing, wasn't it? <laughs> this is how superior Jesus is to Lazarus to any great hero in this world, to any human that's ever lived. Jesus has the power over death, decay, despair, grief, slavery to sin, and everything that might bind you in this world. Jesus rose from the dead, and as in his resurrection, if you have your faith in him, you will rise again, not in Lazarus's body which eventually did die again, but in a new body, in a new heavens and a new earth, in a new reality. But in this life, we live into that. We live with hope, we live with faith, we live into that reality now. And we do that, I believe, as a church together. We don't do that as individual Christians, trying to do it ourselves, all wrapped up in these grave clothes, trying to muddle through life on our own. No, let's do it together. Right now, let's mimic Lazarus. We worship Jesus enthroned in heaven as the life and the resurrection. But also, let's minister to one another. We're going to have prayer time. So straight off in this first song, if you want to receive prayer, please head over in this direction. Don't wait for Andres to come up and call it. Just head in that direction and if the prayer ministry team can go there straight away, that'd be fab. But also we do want you guys, this is family time now. This is moment like last week where we just encourage one another. If you have a word, if you have a song, if you have a tongue, anything like that that you believe will build us up. But this, you can help unbind one another with your words, because Jesus gave them authority to do it. Do you not think Jesus could have said to the grave clothes, unbind him now? Jesus could have said to the grave clothes exactly that. But he said to the people, go and do it. I believe it's time to minister to one another in the power of God now with the authority that he's given us. So let's pray. In Psalm 56, it says this, I will offer a sacrifice of thanks for your help. For you have rescued me from death. You have kept my feet from slipping. So now I can walk in your presence, O God, in your life-giving light. And as Claire shared last week, Jesus is calling people out of tombs with that simple phrase, come out. If you're trapped in a tomb of death, depression, or anything else dark, Jesus has opened the way. The tomb is open. You don't need to stay there anymore. He's calling you today into light 
and freedom. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.